0: Through interviews with top professional, collegiate, and master's level runners, leading dietitians, coaches, sports psychologists, and runners of all shapes and sizes, we hope to spread the message that there is no one-size-fits-all approach to distance running. Now, let's get to the show. Hey, Strong Runner Chicks. Welcome back to the show. It is Megan here, just introducing our wonderful guest this week, Dr. Nicola Rinaldi. Um, Dr. Nicola Rinaldi has a Ph.D. from MIT. Since she experienced amenorrhea herself, hypothalamic amenorrhea, that is called H.A., Dr. Rinaldi has been on a mission to spread awareness of the condition and how to recover. In 2016, she published the book, No Period, Now What, updated March 2019 to be more health at every size aligned. This book is a comprehensive resource that includes much of the medical and scientific research that underlies our current understanding of the triggers for amenorrhea, what steps to take for recovery, and treatments to use for recovery and pregnancy as needed. In addition... Dr. Rinaldi performed the largest survey to date of women who likewise experienced amenorrhea and includes results from the survey answering many of the common questions women have such as how long will recovery take will I be able to get pregnant and will I resume cycling after recover- after pregnancy Finally, the book includes Dr. Rinaldi's own story, along with those hundreds of other women, providing hope and reassurance to women following in their footsteps. Since publishing No Period Now What, Dr. Rinaldi has been on a mission to spread awareness about HA and recovery, appearing as a guest on dozens of podcasts, attending and presenting at industry conferences, as well as continuing to participate in ongoing academic research studies. She also now works with clients on period recovery and helps them get pregnant. So without further ado, we are so excited to welcome Dr. Nicola Rinaldi. We hope that you enjoy the show and definitely check out her website after listening called NoPeriodNowWhat.com.
1: Hello, Strong Runner Chicks. Thank you for joining us today. It's Elena and And uh, Megan. And we are joined today by Nicola Rinaldi. She is uh, an, an expert on all things amenorrhea, and we are so grateful to have her joining us for our conversation today. She has written a couple articles on the website, and I know many of you have seen these articles. Even though they are written two years ago, they're still very prevalent today, and so we just wanted to catch up with her, and we had some wonderful questions to ask her. So thank you for joining us, Nicola. Oh,
2: thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate the chance to t- talk with your audience about amenorrhea, and its effects and how to recover and all that stuff, um, it really, uh, you know, it's, it's become my passion in life and I quit my real job so that I could do this full-time because it's, I find it so meaningful. Um, so, yeah, thank you.
1: Yeah, and I kind of... Uh That leads into our first question, um, was how did you uh, get your start in researching amenorrhea and what kind of drives your passion for doing this? Obviously, you said you quit your job, so you're very passionate about it.
2: Yeah, definitely. So I experienced amenorrhea myself back in the early 2000s. Um, I was exercising a ton. Um, We were just talking about before how I love ice hockey at the time. I was also playing volleyball and squash and lifting weights and biking to and from Cambridge and playing golf with my husband on the weekends. So I was exercising a lot. um, And it was all because I loved it. And then I decided that, uh, you know, I should, so some of the guys in my lab were going on a diet. And I was like, oh, yeah, I've got some love handles to lose. And, you know, I've been, I've been starting to think about getting pregnant. And I read in a lot of places, lose weight to have a healthy pregnancy, lose weight to have an easier time getting pregnant. So i was like, oh, this is fantastic. So, you know, I, I went on this diet with them. I cut my calories severely. Um, and then I went off the pill like a month later. I'm actually really lucky that we were planning to try and get pregnant so soon because it was like, it was really only a month or so of like this severely restricted eating. Um, and I didn't get my period. And so I went to see my doctor and she was like, oh, well wait three months. Cause you know, post pill amenorrhea, blah, blah, blah. Um, come to find out in my research since then that that's not actually really a thing and it's much better to investigate sooner rather than later. Um, but so we waited three months and I still didn't get my period because I was still under eating and exercising a lot. Um, And I started doing a little bit of research and kind of figuring out what was going on. And she, you know, I talked to her about my eating and exercise habits and she sort of gave me this very wishy-washy answer like, oh, well, maybe if you eat a little bit more and maybe if you exercise less, then you might get your period back. But never, never like came out and gave me any kind of hard and fast guidelines. Um, so it, it ended up being quite a long journey. Um, I got pregnant about 18 months after I went off the pill. So it took me a long time. I did have one random period in the middle of there, um, but I had already started working with a reproductive endocrinologist and they did a couple scans and it seemed like nothing was growing. So they said, oh, you know, we need to do injectables because you're never going to get your period back on your own. And, you know, that was just a flu. Um, so lots of things that I've learned in, in hindsight um, that I would do differently now, but yeah, um, Yeah. So I just, I ended up finding a community of women online um, while I was pregnant. So I I, I got pregnant um, naturally in the end, although we were on our way to do IVF. Um, And then I got put on bed rest when I was pregnant because I was having a lot of contractions and they were just like, you know, you, you need to not do anything. And so I found this online community, the Fertile Thoughts Board. And it was a whole bunch of other women suffering from amenorrhea, which was like amazing to me because when I first started, you know, I Googled And there was nothing out there. So this is like 2004 when I, you know, when I first lost my period, there was nothing. I mean, there's just so much more information available now, which is absolutely fantastic. Um, But so I found this board and I started posting and sharing my story and people would ask questions and, you know, I'm a scientist. So I would go and look in the medical literature and like find out information and, I just really loved it, and even after, I, you know, even after I had my baby, that was like what I was doing in my spare time when I was nursing, was I was going on the board and like writing to people, and so it just became kind of my thing in my, in my free time, um, and eventually, after, after a few years of that, people were saying, oh, you know so much, you should write a book, and I was like, ah, huh. you know, it's not something that had ever in a million years crossed my mind that I would be an author Write a book, but I had stuff to say, so I was like, Yeah, I think I should write a book. Um, and so that turned into No Period Now What, which is like 500 pages. Um, it's like everything that I know about how you get amenorrhea, um, how to recover, like all the stuff I know about getting pregnant afterwards, because there's a lot of things that many medical doctors don't know because they don't see a lot of patients with HA. Um, So it's all in there, and I shared my story and the story of hundreds of other women from the board, because I think that that sort of personal aspect to it is really helpful for people to kind of see, like, this isn't just some, like, random science book. It's like, these are real women who went through exactly what I'm going through, and they recovered, and they love their life now, and so, yeah. So, sorry, that was was really long, but... I think you can tell that this is something that I find really meaningful and yeah yeah, so it just it just ended up that I, I you know I so enjoy helping people kind of change around their thought patterns around eating and exercise so that eating becomes just something you do not something you live for and exercise becomes something you enjoy not something you're doing because you think you have to to keep your body a certain size and you know it just it just becomes a life that's so much more enjoyable and free and it's just it's It's fantastic, so, yeah.
0: Yeah, thanks for sharing that. I love that you can see the passion in your voice and in your facial expressions um, and that you really care about this topic, and it's so much more than just the period, right? I mean, it's a whole mindset shift and really life transforming. So, um, And from reading the book and a lot of, I would say, sort of like case studies of women who have regained their cycles, um, you can really tell that it's had a huge impact on them. So um, for those who don't know, just to kind of step back, what is hypothalamic amenorrhea and what is the difference between primary and secondary?
2: So I'll start with the second question first. Um, so primary amenorrhea is when you have never gotten a period, and I think the criterion is by the age of 16. Um, so that there, there can be a number of causes for that. There can be genetic conditions, there can be physical abnormalities. Um, so that's definitely something that should be like you should get a thorough workup by your, you know, by a medical doctor just to kind of check on all of those things. Um, it can also be through the same thing that causes hypothalamic amenorrhea, um, which is you know, underfueling, possibly some exercise thrown in, possibly some stress thrown in. Um, the main driver seems to be underfueling though. Um, then secondary amenorrhea is when you've had a period at some point in the past and then you stop getting it for some reason. Um, again, there can be a number of different reasons for this. It can be hypothalamic amenorrhea, which I'll get into more in a, in a minute. Um, it can be something called Asherman syndrome, which is um, scarring in the uterus that can prevent bleeds. Um, there are medications that can cause amenorrhea. It can be through thyroid issues. Um, there can be a small growth on your pituitary called a microadenoma. Um, I've never seen one be uh, be cancerous, but it's, so it's just a benign growth, but it causes increased prolactin which can suppress your reproductive hormones and mean you don't have a cycle. So, oh, and uh, P- polycystic ovarian syndrome is another cause for secondary amenorrhea. So there are a lot of things that it could be. So it's definitely worth going to see a medical doctor to get, like, to get all of that stuff ruled out. Um, you know, if it's not one of those things, which all would kind of take precedence over HA, then it likely is hypothalamic amenorrhea. Um, so unfortunately, there isn't a strong diagnostic for HA, um, Luteinizing hormone tends to be low in women who are experiencing this, but not always. Um, so it's kind of about ruling out some of those other things, and then looking at lifestyle and um, eating habits, and exercise, and kind of you know analyzing all of that. And you know, then you kind of like if you are probably underfueling, you exercise a lot, then it's likely that it might be that it is HA. Um, so hypothalamic amenorrhea. Um, is a missing period because of your hypothalamus, which is an organ in your brain that kind of controls um, a vast, like a lot of your um, hormonal signals. It takes in hormonal input. It it puts out hormonal input. Um, It controls things like your temperature, um, your eating hunger and, you know, hunger and fullness signals, signals, and it controls your reproductive system. Um, so when you have hypothalamic amenorrhea, basically what's happening is that your hypothalamus is either not getting the signals that it needs in order to do its job, or it's getting signals that are actually suppressing it and preventing it from doing its job, which is, um, one of them is the reproductive system, as I mentioned. So it secretes a hormone called gonadotropin-releasing hormone, um, and that drives secretion by the pituitary gland of follicle-stimulating hormone. Which is what kind of gets the whole menstrual cycle started.
0: So, it's really interesting. Thank you for providing the science behind that for our listeners that want to dive deeper just to kind of understand the whole process that occurs. Um, so, can you explain the role our menstrual cycles have on our bodies and as athletes, as women and as athletes, I should say?
2: So, our menstrual cycles are actually pretty important for our overall health. Um, and the reason for that is that there are about twenty different hormones that go up and down during our menstrual cycle. I mean, they're the ones that we all know about. There's estrogen and progesterone. Um, those are probably the most well-studied, and those have some pretty significant impacts on our body. Um, they call, you, know, they they play a large role in um, bone growth, bone, you know, bone density, which um, you know can be that, that's actually a huge thing for us as women because. Um, we, because we go through menopause later on in life and we lose our periods, we lose that estrogen and progesterone support and can have much more issues with low bone, t- low bone density as we get older than men do, who, you know, who have a very different hormonal system. Um, the whole bone density thing is a really, really important one to, to think about and pay attention to. Um, estrogen and progesterone are also involved in other things like heart health. And um, cancer prevention, um, and possibly uh, sort of keeping our brains in good shape. Um, so, one thing that you know, there's there's a lot of the information. So, I have a ton of this in my book, um, and a lot of the information is actually derived from effects on women who have um, surgical who undergo surgical menopause so they have their ovaries and uterus removed for whatever whatever reason and then doctors have studied what happens to them and they, they do find that you know a sharp decrease in bone density and you know incident earlier incidence of dementia and other neurodegenerative diseases um, so that like that's sort of the long term impact and then short term things like when you're when your hypothalamus is suppressed it's usually not, um, you know, it it kind of shuts down as much as it can to save energy. Things like keeping you warm. So women with amenorrhea are often cold all the time. Um, You often have brittle hair and nails, um, no libido, no lubrication. So there's a lot of sort of short-term things that are um, like less than ideal, but it's it's really the long-term consequences that, that I'm more concerned about. Oh, and then obviously you can't have a baby when you're not ovulating. So that, I mean, like, I forgot to mention that. That's a pretty big deal.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, I think those are some important things. And I know for listeners, if you want to read more, if there's something you're really interested in, we will have a link to Nicola's book if you haven't read it yet. So you can kind of d- dive into this a little bit deeper. Um, and obviously as a common thing for a lot of athletes is a question about how to go about regaining or restoring um, menstrual cycles. And then that we also have a couple listener questions that kind of relate to this. So, um, I might add those in as you're
2: explaining. Yeah. So as I mentioned, the, it seems that the biggest driver for hypothalamic amenorrhea is underfueling, So not actually eating enough to support everything that your body is doing. Um, this is often driven, well, it, it kind of has two parts to it. Um, One part is driven by our, by our current society, where we're told that being thin is healthy, the smaller you are, the healthier you are. Um, And obviously, like, appearance wise, as well, we're all encouraged to be as as small as we possibly can. So that often leads to under, you know, what is under fueling, although it's following, you know, a diet that sort of is recommended all over the place, like, you know, Fifteen hundred calories or eighteen hundred calories is often recommended as sort of a maintenance level. Um, in fact, that is actually way under what we probably need as women, and especially as active women. Um, and then when you exercise, especially when you're doing high intensity exercise, it's interesting because you may not even realize that you're under fueling, but often. Um, our natural hunger signals don't compensate adequately for the exercise that we're doing. So there was a really interesting study that was done um, where they had men, of course, because most of the studies are done in men, but I think this one is translatable. Um, So they had men uh, either just, you know, have a normal day and go to a buffet and eat as much as they wanted, and they recorded everything they ate. And then they had them do 800 calories worth of exercise and go to that same buffet, and they recorded how much they ate. So they did eat more, but they did not eat enough to compensate for that 800 calories that they had burned. And I think that's something that's really, really common, especially in, you know, sort of hardcore athletes like runners, marathon runners, um, you know, triathletes. I think it's really hard to, you know... We're not sort of told how much our fuel, our bodies really need, and then even if we think we're eating enough, it's not necessarily compensated for by those by our hunger and fullness cues. So there has to be a lot of deliberation about how much you're eating when you're doing a lot of athletic training. Um, so the number one thing for recovering your period is making sure that you are actually eating enough to support your daily activity and everything that your body is doing. Plus. Any extra, any sort of planned exercise that you're doing. Um, so in my book, I recommend um, 2,500 calories per day for somebody who's active but not doing any planned, um, you know, high-intensity exercise. That's a lot when you, you know, when you think about like the the recommended number is 2,000 or what have you. And I, I provide all the evidence for this in the book. Um, you know, there are a couple of different ways that. Um, caloric output is measured, and um, those reachers, researchers found that about 2,500 calories is what people are actually taking in on a daily basis. Um, the previous recommendation of 2,000 calories a day was based on self-reported intake, and most people tend to underreport what they're eating. So, you know, I think the reality is probably closer to 2,500, but people, you know, don't necessarily want to say everything they're eating. They might overestimate or underestimate how many calories are in something. They might forget about snacks. Um, And then I think particularly in women who have HA, we tend to, I know I did this when I was restricting my calories. I always tended to overestimate. Like if I didn't know how many calories are in something, I would be on like, oh, I'm going to guess this much, which is I'm almost sure is more than it actually is because my goal was to lose weight and to be as small as possible. And So I think that that's another really common thing that we do is um, we overestimate and maybe, you know, sort of other people, the people that these um, recommendations came from are underestimating. So that gives us even a bigger calorie mismatch from what our bodies actually need. Um, So in terms of what they do need, if there's sort of our basal metabolic rate, which tends to be somewhere between 1,200 and 1,500 calories a day, that's just for if you're lying in bed all day doing nothing, so, you know, the idea that you have to be on 1200 calories to lose weight is like literally insanity because that's not even enough to probably just support your body just existing. Um, and then, you know, we burn calories from all the movements that we do during the day, you know, like you see me like waving my hands around, that's burning calories, you know, all the walking that you do to go to the kitchen to go to the bathroom, that's burning calories. Um, when you eat, you actually use about 10% of the, what you eat just to digest that food, because that's work that your body has to do. Um, And then if you're you're doing any kind of planned exercise, uh, then, you know, not only are you burning the calories while you're exercising, you also burn an additional amount after you're done exercising because your heart rate is still a bit elevated. Your body's still doing some more work. So I think we just have this really false idea of how much our bodies actually need. Um, So that's like the number one thing is eating enough to support all of that stuff, you know, your, your heart pumping, your blood, your brain, you know, your brain working, your lungs breathing, um, your cells making protein and DNA, like all of that stuff is going on all the time. And it takes fuel. And then if you exercise and you don't eat enough to support that exercise, your body has to decide what to what to basically not do because you've used up those calories for exercise, that's, you know, there's no question about that. So whatever is left over is what your body has to make do with. And so that's why things get shut down because there's not enough energy for keeping you warm, for keeping your reproductive system running, you know, for all those things that we talked about before.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. And I uh, agree with your statement that we often do forget how much our bodies actually need and how much our bodies are doing daily. You know, we can go about our days and like, oh, well, I didn't work out today, but your body's still doing so much to keep your to keep yourself alive for the day. So that's a great reminder to kind of share again. Um, A a listener question that's uh, related to regaining your menstrual cycle was, is it possible to regain your menstrual cycle without intentionally gaining weight? or reducing training? For instance, uh, if this person was running around anywhere between 50 and 70 miles a week, which is obviously a a lot of strain on our bodies.
2: Yeah. Um, So in terms of weight gain, um, really the key point is eating enough to support your daily activity. Um, But I find that often periods don't Come back without some level of weight gain. Um, What happens is when we're doing a lot of exercise, our bodies tend to be smaller than they naturally want to be. Um, So for a lot of women that have HA, uh, there has been some intentional or unintentional weight loss in the past history. Um, So part of my book, I did a survey of about 300 women who have HA, and I asked them all sorts of questions about how much they were eating, how much they were exercising, weight changes in the past, Um, you know, what kinds of things they were doing for recovery. And some of the things I found actually surprised me, one of which was the number of women that had lost weight in the past. And so I asked—I had asked a question in the survey, have you ever lost at least 10 pounds? And 82% of the women said yes, which blew my mind. I had no idea that, you know, that weight loss was that common in this population. Um, So what I found through my years working with women to recover periods is that for many women, periods don't come back until they get to sort of that weight that their bodies were at before they started intentional or unintentional weight loss. So a lot of times, if you like, if you start training for a marathon, um, you might lose weight because again, you don't realize how much fuel your body actually needs, um, or you know, you up the intensity of your training, but you don't increase the amount that you're eating. Um, there can often be weight loss associated with that, and our bodies have this kind of set point or set range that they like to be at. That's sort of our natural genetic basis. And when you're not, when you're under eating and keeping your body smaller than that, um, you tend to have to get back to that place in order to restore periods. Now I'm never, I'm never going to say never, like you can try, you know, anyone is welcome to try anything. Um, But just in my experience, waking is, necessary in order to restore your periods. Um, So I actually did another survey after that one. And I found that the the rate of period recovery is much, much higher in women who gain about 10% of their body weight. So that's a you know another thing to kind of aim for. So it uh, it often like I said it often ends up being sort of getting back to that initial weight that you were at. Um, you know if you've had a if you've had a wide range of weights over the years, like if you've been in a much larger body, much smaller body, then it tends to be kind of somewhere in the middle. Um, you know if you've always been small and you lost weight, then it probably has to be sort of back to where you initially were. Um, or it could be that you've been too small for your genetic set point for most of your life. And so you you do have to get you know, to a size that's a little bit more than you were at that point. Um, on the exercise front, so the issue with high-intensity exercise is that it increases um, cortisol levels. And cortisol suppresses your hypothalamus. So it's possible, in theory, that you can eat enough to to sort of overcome your energy deficit and regain your period while continuing to do high intensity exercise. But again, in my experience, um, most women find that they do have to significantly decrease or cut out high intensity exercise altogether. Um, and which one of those options you might choose that depends on your, you know, your life story and your reasons for trying to get your period back and how, po- how important it is to you. Um, for people who want to get pregnant, it's often the most important thing. And so it's much easier to say, I'm just going to go cold turkey and cut out like whatever high intensity exercise I've been doing. Um, for someone who's not, maybe for someone who's a college athlete, it's not, you know, that's not as realistic. So I think, you know, you just, maybe if you're a college athlete, maybe you don't do as much cross-training in your off-season. Maybe you take a little bit more of a break, do some more low-intensity exercise. Um, You know, it's a very, very individual um, choice and decision. But again, I will say that for the most part, I find that women do have to severely cut down or cut out the high-intensity exercise, um, which I define as sort of a heart rate above about 100. Um, Again, this is based on a research study where they looked at Cortisol levels in women who were not exercising and then exercising at 40%, 60%, and 80% of their max intensity. Um, They found pretty much no changes in cortisol and other stress hormones at 40% of max intensity. Um, There were changes in about half the people at 60% of max and in everybody at 80% of max. So I generally recommend when I say low intensity exercise I kind of mean keeping your heart rate at around 100 or you know not probably not spiking to above 120 ish um,
0: so yeah okay
2: yeah, yeah that that's
0: very helpful um, and at some point I want to dive into the research that still needs to be done because it seems that you have a very solid foundation for research studies but I'm sure there's still some lacking in terms of amenorrhea Um, that being said another question that we got was just advice on and you know a lot of athletes may be vegetarian for various reasons or vegan um what advice would you have for first off just general dietary advice to regaining your cycle and then also for those plant-based athletes to um increase their caloric intake so generally for
2: increasing caloric
0: intake um
2: I recommend sort of, well, one of the easy things to do is to cut out anything that's non-fat or low fat from your diet, your life. I mean, that's that stuff's crap anyway. <laughs> so, like, just get rid of that. Eat the full fat stuff. Um, it's so much tastier. And, you know, especially if you're an athlete, you know, your body needs fat and it needs those calories. So there's really no reason to be eating non-fat, low-fat things. I mean, that's that's an easy one. Um, and then just thinking about ways to add additional calories into your diet that are easy for you to accomplish. Um, you know, things like nuts and nut butters are super easy because like they have all, they pack a good caloric punch. There's a lot of energy in a small package, which makes it easy to eat. Um, if you, um, you know, avocados, um, and then, you know, uh, you know, I mean, or adding oils into things like, I actually did see a nutritionist when I was trying to recover my period and she was like, you know, you can, cook with oil and you can add oil into stuff. And I was like, huh, I never thought, I mean, like, cause I grew up in the eighties when like low fat was like all the rage. And so like everything I cooked was no oil, nothing. And she's she like, you could cook with oil. I'm like, "Huh, yeah, I could. And she said, you could even add it to things, like add it to like pasta sauce. And I'm like, wow, like mind blown. <laughs> um, so, you know, that's another easy way, like putting, like adding extra salad dressing to your salads so, that, you know, that kind of thing. Just thinking a little bit more mindfully about, okay, how can I add in some more energy to what I'm eating on a daily basis? You know, having a good breakfast is primo key. Um, I think that um, there was another study that where they looked at elite athletes in Sweden. Um, they were all eating about 3,500 calories a day. I mean, like 3,500 calories a day and burning about 1,000. So net of 2,500 calories a day, which should be sufficient. Um, but some of the women had their periods and some of them didn't. And when they looked more closely into how these women were structuring their day, they found that those without their periods were at an energy deficit for about four hours more per day than those who did have their periods. So that's from things like waking up and going for a run before you had anything to eat. Like that puts your body in a huge caloric deficit because you've already you're already in a deficit from sleeping, because again, your body is burning calories all day long. And then you go for a run that's not fueled. And so now you're probably like. A thousand calories in the hole in terms of your energy balance, and that's that's hard to come back from. Um, so, having a good breakfast is, you know, is really important in my opinion. Um, and then, other ways to add in calories are, you know, things like pizza and French fries and burgers and stuff like that, ice cream, cookies, cake. You know, it's maybe like in our current society, those things are considered unhealthy, quote unquote. But man, they pack a good caloric punch and they're easy to eat. You know, they they to, I much prefer the term highly palatable foods, um, because that's you know, that's a really easy way like to, to get in some more calories. And you know, I think that there's so much black and white thinking around nutrition these days. Um, like if You know, they do studies and they find that people who eat, you know, 50 percent of their calories from sugar are more likely to get diabetes. So all of a sudden it's like sugar is toxic. Sugar is really bad for you. Don't eat any sugar. It's like, you know, there can be a little bit of a middle ground um, and particularly for women and particularly for women who are athletes. Our bodies need carbs. They need that quick source of energy. Um, our hypothalamus is actually sensitive to both glucose and insulin. So if you're keeping those, oops, sorry. Um, if you're keeping those low all day, then that's suppressing your hypothalamus. Um, so I think for amenorrhea recovery, you kind of have to turn some of these like common wisdom things, uh, you know, get, just get rid of them because like eat what you want to eat, eat things that are enjoyable, eat things where you can get, you know, the number of calories that you need. Um, In terms of the plant-based question, um, I certainly have worked with women who have recovered their periods while remaining vegan or vegetarian. Um, I think you have to be very, very much more mindful about what you're eating because vegetables have very few calories in them. So, you know, like four cups of spinach can fill you up, but it's like 30 calories, which is not enough for anybody, particularly for an athlete. So I think In order to recover as a vegetarian or a vegan, like, you know, I think it it can be done, but you have to be very mindful about choosing the high calorie options and not stuffing yourself with fruits and vegetables that have, you know, that are plain and have, you know, have no dressing on them, you know, no, like, because some of those dressings and things are, you know, much easier ways to get in the calories that you
1: need. Yeah, that's a that's great advice. And then I kind of answered one of my questions with like some common myths that we hear about our our periods. And um, those are all things that I think kind of fall under that about like regaining and just like other health myths. Um, Another question we had from our listeners is in regard to birth control. And what kind of um, for maybe we have like two questions. Well, one is for an athlete who has not gotten her menstrual cycle or not regularly um, and knowing what birth control might be best for that and then second question related to that is somebody who um, was asking about um, an IUD and hearing a myth that it was okay not to get your period while on an IUD.
2: Okay so I'll take the second question first again. Um, So I think that's probably talking about something like the Morena IUD where there is a low level of hormones um, that can prevent you from having a bleed. So, what's really interesting about the Marina, I actually have one myself, um, is you can ovulate while you're on it. So, I every month notice my ovulatory signs. I see the increase in egg white cervical Back to my temperature for a number of cycles now, just because I was interested because, you know, somebody told me, oh, you don't ovulate. But one of the reasons that I actually chose it was because in reading the literature, it seemed that the level of progesterone is low enough and local enough that you can actually have a menstrual cycle. You just, it, your bleed is very light or, you know, to non existent So I, some months I have like a small wipe of pink, other months I'll need a light days pad for like five days. It kind of varies but I ovulate. So you can, you can be on a marine IUD and recover your cycles. And, um, you know, I think that that's, you're still, you're getting all of the hormones that are necessary. It's just the IUD prevents you from, prevents your lining from growing um, and prevents pregnancies in a couple of other ways. So it's, you know, in my opinion, it's a reasonable option for somebody. I know that there are people who don't respond well to that IUD. They can have um you know, other uh, like there can be some anxiety like that's something that people can google if they're interested but for me, it's been great i you know I feel good I, I I don't have any increased level of anxiety, and I don't have to worry about pregnancy um so it's it's been great for me, and like I said, I ovulate every month so I'm getting the benefits of those of those hormones still um In terms of recovering your period while on an IUD, I would follow the same plan. You know, you should, as you're working to recover from amenorrhea, you will probably notice, like, increased vaginal lubrication. um, And, you know, I I talk about it in my book and other great resources for learning about your menstrual cycles. I highly recommend that all of your female listeners, um, all your menstruating listeners, because not all are female... um, Find out about how to track your menstrual cycle. So there's a new book that's just come out called The Fifth Vital Sign by Lisa Hendricks and Jax. That's a great resource. Um, Taking charge of your fertility is another one. Um, So learning about how to monitor your own body for ovulation, I think is so, so valuable, whether you want to get pregnant or not, because knowing when you ovulate, knowing if you've ovulated and comparing that to when you actually get your period can tell you a lot about the health of your menstrual cycle. Um, so I think that's really well worth uh, learning about. Um, okay, so the first question about birth control. Um, so birth control pills are often given to women who have lost their periods, and you're told, oh, you know, don't worry about it. It's not a big problem. Just take the pills. They'll protect your bones, and then when you want to get pregnant, you can, you know, you can use injectables and get pregnant, no problem. Um, There's a lot in that kind of thinking that's not really accurate. So there have been a number of studies over the years that have shown that being on the pill, while it is better than not having your period at all, um, it's still definitely not as good as having a regular menstrual cycle. And it's probably not as good as being on hormone replacement therapy. Um, which, like, with the natural estrogen and progesterone instead of the birth control pill, which is synthetic estrogen and progesterone. Um, so, the pill doesn't allow it. it there are a couple of studies that I sort of refer to when I think about this, um, done in teenagers. There was one study where they looked at bone density changes in teenagers on the pill versus those not on the pill. So these are they're not people. Not people who are experiencing amenorrhea. These are just sort of standard everyday teenagers who would be getting cared. They found that those who were on the pill had a bone density increase of about two percent. Those not on the pill had a those menstruating on their own had a bone density increase of about twelve percent. That's a big difference, and that kind of difference can make a you know make a big difference down the line because it compounds. Um, And then, you know, other studies, there was a recent one where they found that um, birth control pills suppress um, IGF-1, which is another hormone that's involved in bone growth. So it's just like, I mean, so being on the pill is probably better than not getting your period at all, if you're not willing to work toward recovery. Um, I would put, like I said, I would put hormone hormone replacement therapy over being on the pill. Um, I'm Hormone replacement therapy probably isn't quite as good for birth control purposes, um, because it doesn't necessarily stop you from ovulating, although mostly it does. Um, but that's, that definitely seems to be better for you bone density-wise and probably uh, your other health-wise, although I haven't really seen much research on that, so that's speculation. Um, so those are sort of the options in terms of birth control pills and bone density and sort of working toward recovery. Strongly recommend working toward recovery. Um, if you're on the birth control pill and you lose weight, you lose bone density as well. So it doesn't protect you in that way. It just kind of keeps you at a status quo, um, which, you know, depending on how old you are, that that can be more or less important. You know, in your teen years, I really would encourage people not to use the birth control pill and really... I think your own menstrual cycles are much more beneficial for you because that's the time when you're really supposed to be gaining the most bone density is your teen and early 20 years. You know, if you're in your late thirties, you know, then your bone density tends to be more static. So maybe not as much of an issue, you know, so it's, I mean, it has to be a very individual choice, just like everything else about this. You know, it has to work for you in terms of actual birth control. Um, I think there are a lot of other options that don't, you know, that where you you can still have your natural cycle and you don't, um, you know, you don't have to worry about pregnancy, but you're also not getting those sort of synthetic hormones. Um, So there's, you know, things like there's um, obviously condoms are an option. Um, There's, you know, diaphragms. I mean, there's, there's a whole bunch of stuff. There's something I just saw recently called a femcap, which is like a menstrual cup, except it like goes over your cervix. Um, you know, so I would encourage people to like talk with your OBGYN about alternative birth control methods. I mean, you know, I'm not going to say to somebody like, don't ever go on the pill because that might be the right choice for you, but just be aware that, you know, some of what you're told about some of, you know, about it, you know, it protects your bones, you know, it'll make everything better. Yeah, probably not so true. So I think weighing the, you know, really talking, having an in-depth conversation with your doctor, weighing the pros and cons of all the different methods, I think is very valuable.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Thank you for sharing. I think that's some great advice. And I think, too, also, you brought up two things I wanted to point touch on was, um, well, number one, like, we're all individual. um, And so what we're sharing today, should always go and consult with with a professional. But another point was that you brought up, um, and you talked about it was um, just like, um, society has taught us that we shouldn't really, um, our periods are kind of something we don't really need to know about our that's just one part of our menstrual cycle it's a whole cycle Um, and that's something that I've gotten really into reading a little bit more about and be more educated about my body and I also I have the taking charge of your fertility book and that's been something really helpful so I just wanted to share that with listeners like that it's not um, it's okay to know your body to understand your cycle because that's the whole cycle of our menstrual cycles Sometimes we just go about like, oh, we have our period, oh, this is kind of inconvenient. Oh, well, oh, it's over. And then you just carry on without knowing these different things about our bodies and the different signs that our body gives us throughout our cycles, which can help us to regain um, your menstrual cycle if you have lost it. Um, and then to maintain it as well. So I just wanted to uh kind of point that out a little bit because I think that's something really important. And I actually went to uh about a month ago, I went to a, like a woman's discussion about our menstrual cycles and it was really empowering and I learned so much from it so
2: yeah I mean, the bodies are so freaking cool like the fact that they make this like egg white cervical mucus around the time when we're about to ovulate and you know it facilitates the sperm getting up to the egg. it's like that is so super cool. it's really amazing and understanding what's happening and when and knowing when you're ovulating like like you said it's really really empowering and i wish that that kind of information were more widely talked about um you know i wish periods and menstrual cycles were more talked about in general because there's nothing shameful about it and you know it's a really important part of who we are as as, as females as women as menstruators and so
0: yeah well, yeah you're certainly doing a lot to bring this to the forefront and keep the conversation going. Um, With that being said, we had another question that came up. Um, What if a a listener wanted to know, so what if her bone density and hormone levels look okay? And, uh, you know, okay is hard for us to define in this instance, but if they seem to be in a normal or healthy range, but she's still not getting her period, what is your advice there?
2: Um, so again, that's sort of a two-part question. So in terms of hormone levels being normal, um, they certainly can be with HA, but that's your, that's your baseline level. What's not normal if you're not getting your period is that you're not getting the increase in estrogen and progesterone that happened during a normal menstrual cycle. So as the egg inside your follicle grows, it secretes estradiol, which, like, like we talked about, is a really important hormone for female health, not just bone density. Um, then after you ovulate, the the follicle collapses and becomes this thing called the corpus luteum, and that is what actually secretes the progesterone. And so the you know your progesterone levels are quite high in the second half of your cycle. And um, like I said, progesterone is also highly involved in sort of bone density and other you know impacts our health in other ways as well. So both of those hormones are really important. And if you don't have your period, you're not getting those increases. So even if your baseline levels look quote unquote normal. Um, what's not normal is not having a cycle and not getting those monthly you know, changes in those hormone levels. Not to mention all the other hormones that are involved as well, like the follicle-stimulating hormone, luteinizing hormone, there are prostaglandins, there are inhibins, like kispeptin. I mean, there's so much other stuff that happens, and we don't really know what a lot of those molecules do, but chances are that they do have other functions besides just being involved in our menstrual cycle. Um, and then, in, in terms of normal bone density, um, that's great. You know, I think that you know, certainly having a normal bone density after having amenorrhea for some number of years means that your body has you know been able to maintain that. Or you know, but perhaps you had a much higher bone density and it came back down, and it's now it's quote unquote normal. And if you continue with amenorrhea, maybe it's gonna you know degrade further over time. So. I don't think that having normal bone density and at one particular scan should make you feel like having amenorrhea is okay. And there aren't going to be any health consequences for you down the line because you just don't know that. And there certainly is a lot of strong evidence um, that those hormones are involved in maintaining our bone density. And so, you know, 10 years down the line, I mean, you know, I don't think I'd want to play. I don't think I'd want to take that risk. Um, You know, I think, learning more about what osteoporosis actually looks like can be really eye opening because we sort of think oh osteoporosis you know you might break a bone here or there like ah eh, what's the big deal but it's so much more than that like my my co-author lisa um her mom has osteoporosis she has broken bones from stepping off a curb she's broken bones from just like putting her arm down on the floor like this is some serious shit, people. Like, this is not something that you want to mess with. So I think it's really important to think about that kind of thing and the long-term impacts. And, you know, is it really worth being in a small body right now to potentially have that as a consequence down the line when you're a grandparent and you want to play with your grandkids and you have to tell them, no, don't, you know, be careful because I might break a bone. I mean, so I don't, you know, I'm not trying to be a fear monger here. I'm not trying to, but I think it's really important to, um, you know, it, it's hard to comprehend that in your 30s, you your 20s, 30s, 40s. It's like, that seems so far away, but I think learning a bit more about what osteoporosis really looks like and what it means can give you maybe a little bit more incentive for making some changes now. Um, And also like change the risk benefit analysis a little bit.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a, that's another thing to look at too, because while right now um, the majority of our listeners are getting their menstrual cycles, thinking into the future about the effects of not having your menstrual cycle right now, what that can look like in the future too, is a great thing to consider. Uh, so respect uh, your time. I wanted to start um, kind of with our normal wrap up questions that we have. Um, and one of our questions is what right now is currently making you thrive?
2: Um, honestly, doing this work is so it, it makes me so happy. So like I said, I, I had been a project manager at MIT, and it was the most stressful thing I'd ever done in my life. And I was like, why am I doing this? I don't, I'm not getting that much enjoyment out of it. And like every night I was on my Facebook group, like helping women. And um, I was like, I just don't want to do this anymore. So I quit that job and I decided to hang out with helping women regain periods. Um, so that's what I do. I consult with women now. I, you know, I re- just recently updated my book to sort of change some language around body size um, and add some other things that I, I, I feel like I've learned in the, the years since I published it um and I'm you know I'm ha- I have more time to write blog posts and do research but I really love working with women one-on-one and you know so I think that's like I'm so much happier now than I was when I was you know doing the project management thing um and it's just it's like I I so look forward to every day because I get to like I get to chat with people like you guys and I get to educate people and I get to work with women and it's just it's so empowering and brings so much joy because like when I read posts or I hear from people that they've regained their periods or they've gotten that pregnant, positive pregnancy test. It's like, it just makes my heart big and it's, it's wonderful. So.
1: Yeah. Your joy is infectious. I can just um, yeah. get it from you. Like how, how happy you really are. And I hope that's something that um, we all can find what it is, our niche that makes us that happy.
0: So um, looking back kind of on your own experience. What advice would you give to your younger self?
2: number one, don't go on a diet. Like, Oh my God, that's like, that was the biggest thing for me. Like if I think I really think that if I had not cut my calories, I never would have experienced the amenorrhea. I mean, then I wouldn't be where I am now, but you know, I I think that that would be my number one thing, like accept your body, your body, like nobody has, I don't think there's anybody who really thinks their body is quote unquote perfect. Like we all find flaws And like, instead of focusing on that, just focus on the amazing things that your body does for you. Like it lets you run. It lets me play ice hockey. You know, it lets us carry children. I mean, there's just so many amazing things um, that are better for us than being small. Like that, I mean, there's, there's a little quote out there. Like nobody's tombstone ever says she had a great, you know, she was the smallest person in the world. Like nobody's, that's not the kind of things that make for a good life. So, dropping the focus on size and focusing more on, um, everything else, all the other cool and amazing things we can do, I think is just so worthwhile. So that's my number one thing. Don't go on a (laughs) diet.
0: That's definitely good advice. Um, all right. I did actually, I just thought of a question I wanted to just come back to briefly, kind of on what's making you thrive. Um, what are, any current projects that listeners can look out for um, or research studies that either you want to take on or that are currently that you could see coming forth? Like we may have listeners who are in a master's or PhD program who would like to research this topic Mm -hmm. further. Mm -hmm. So um, what areas do you think we could study a bit further?
2: So, I, uh, I'm i very sad in hindsight that I did not do a medical degree because I feel like there are definitely studies that I would love to run, um, particularly around some things around period recovery because – there's um there's been there's a lot of stuff that we know about why women lose their periods, but not nearly as much about sort of the nitty-gritty of getting them back. Um there's actually a study that I think will be published relatively soon. Um the clinical trial has been published, I think it's the refuel trial, um, Rebecca Mallinson et al. Um so that study looks amazing. I mean they they followed a group of women for a year as they worked toward period recovery and they made you know they tracked um, their food intake. They track their hormone levels on, a, like on an ongoing basis. Really cool study. Can't wait for the results. Um, so stuff like that, just learning more about sort of the levels of exercise that are okay or not okay. Because you know, I kind of make my recommendation to cut out high-intensity exercise because I don't have, we don't have a good sense of what might be okay and what might be reasonable for somebody to do. So it's kind of like the more you want to regain your period probably the more likely that you, you just should cut it all out, but there's not, there haven't been any good studies on, on that sort of aspect. Um, another thing is there are some medications that you can use once you've sort of worked on lifestyle changes that can help you restart your periods. And those are Clomid and Femara and Tamoxifen. Um, so I have a ton of info in the book about those as well. Um, they don't work if you're still, you know, if your lifestyle behaviors are still HA-like. Like if you're still in, you know, if your body's still too small, you're still exercising a lot, you're still under they don't work. But once you have made some of those changes, they can be a nice adjunct to recovery if you don't get your period back naturally. Um, so average time to recovery is about five to six months. Um, so for someone who's taking longer than that, so looking into some of these medications might be worthwhile. Um, and I think that's something where I can really be helpful to people because I have a lot of experience with it. But it's all, like, all my experience is anecdotal. Like, I don't have a study where I've been able to say, okay, let's take these women, let's, let's test their hormone levels and see, you know, when do, when do people respond, when do they not respond? Um, so stuff like that, I think, would be absolutely fantastic. Um, so, yeah. And then if anyone is interested in doing this kind of research, please contact me because I have tons of ideas. And, yeah.
0: Awesome, yeah, I would absolutely love to see more studies um, and really appreciate all the ones that you have shared. Um, that being said, so our final question, Elena, would you like to ask it? what we know? yeah,
1: ask? yeah, so I okay, guess we talked about we modified it a little bit. But what does being a strong athlete chick mean to you <laughs>
2: um, so yeah we talked about how I do not run I will never run <laughs> it's not my thing um, so I play ice hockey and I love it and it you know it just means I have this great part of my life I get to move my body I get to enjoy the physical activity um, I get to you know I it, I mean obviously exercise is healthy and having that as part of your life I think is fantastic So being a strong athlete chick to me means that I get to do all this cool stuff with my body. And, you know, it helps with your mental, like, mental awareness and everything. And it's just, like, this great part of my life. It's not my whole life. I have a, you know, I have so much identity to me outside of being an athlete. Um, But it's, I love it. I uh, I love playing ice hockey. I, you know, I started when I met my husband about 20 years ago, so post-college. Um, I tried it the first time and I was absolutely hooked and now I play way more than he does. Um, and I, you know, I, I myself playing well into my sixties and seventies and it's just, you know, I, I love it and it's a great part of my life. Um, but I do like a whole bunch of other cool things too. And I think having, having something athletic that's part of you, I think is just, uh, you know, it, 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 yeah. I mean, you guys know, it's,
1: <laughs> Yeah, I love that. I love how you said you do all this stuff. It's so fulfilling, but it's not your whole life. And I think that's a, a good message um, to end with for everyone. And just um, as we wrap up, our last thing, if any listeners out there want to reach out to you, um, any have any questions for you or support, where's the best place that they can reach you?
2: Um, so I have lots of avenues of connection. I have a, a Facebook page, which is um, facebook.com slash no period now what. Um, I actually have a couple of support groups that um, I would highly recommend to anybody who who's sort of going through amenorrhea and trying to recover um, because, you know, they have hundreds or thousands of women in them and just getting feedback from other people who are in the same situation as you, because it's like amenorrhea is not that common and it's not that much talked about. So in our real lives, it can feel very isolating. Um, so that group is at no slash support. Um, And then I'm on Instagram and Twitter at No Period Now What. Um, I'm not very active on Twitter, much more so on Instagram. Um, And then there's also a contact me form on my website, which is noperiodnowwhat.com. If people are interested in purchasing the book, I would super appreciate it if you would purchase through my website instead of Amazon, because they take a lot of the proceeds. So um, more of it goes to me if you purchase through my website. Um, and I do also work with women one-on-one, as I said. So I th- you know, I think that's something that people could consider as well. Um, and so if anyone's interested in that, you noperiodinfo know, period.info slash appointments is the place to reach me there. So. Well,
1: awesome. You, uh, I hope our listeners know where to reach you. You're very available for all, for all to reach out and to serve as a help and just an ear to listen to and help guide, guide our listeners, um, into, a, um, a healthier lifestyle and just, um, you know, getting more in touch with our bodies. So Nicola, we really appreciate you joining us today. And I know our listeners are going to take a lot from this conversation. You had a lot of wonderful information to share. And for listeners, we'll have everything linked up on our podcast show notes uh, when the podcast is released. So thank you all for joining us today.
0: Thanks again for tuning in to another episode of Strong Runner Chick Radio. Do us a favor and leave a review on iTunes to help spread awareness and foster the SRC community. Additionally, you can follow us at Strong Run Chicks on Instagram or find our group or Facebook page at Strong Runner Chicks. Have an awesome day.